This is GamesAtWork.biz, your weekly podcast about gaming, technology, and play. Your hosts are Michael Martin, Andy Piper, and Michael Rowe. The thoughts and opinions on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and are not the opinions of any organization which they have been, are, or may be affiliated with. This is Palindromic, episode 373, We Are All Stardust. Hello and welcome to another edition of GamesAtWork.biz. This is Michael Martin, one of your co-hosts and co-friends and co-founders of said podcast. I'm joined today by another Michael who is um, co-host, co-friend, and co-founder um, of said podcast as well. Michael, how are you doing? Hey, I am well, Michael. How are you? Well, I, I, I would have been better. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're, we're we're missing our friend Andy, who we mentioned last week would be out this week. He is uh, speaking at EuroPython this week, which is, uh, you know, looks like he's having a good fun time in Dublin. Yes, yeah. H- home of uh, no snakes, as I understand. Yes, none whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> but Python is not a snake uh, in this context. In case any of you from our Nature Channel were wondering that. Um, Anywho, we have a large contingent over at the Nature Channel. I know, I know. It's just you know sometimes they blend and they come over and they do stuff. And, um, and so uh, great to be back. I'm sorry that I missed yes uh, last week's episode, but I, I am back and uh, we'll kind of be doing our tag teaming approach here between the three of us as we do our summertime related activities. Um, we are here to talk today uh, about non-terrestrial related activities. To be very specific, uh, what has come back to Earth from our newest space telescope. And Michael, I will let you kind of walk people through what the James Webb scope pictures meant to you when you first saw them. Yeah, and and as uh, you know, we come out on the Monday following a week later than the Tuesday when they were actually exposed. So most people have seen these by now, but I don't care. Yeah. Because these are these it's cool and we like it and it's pretty exciting. So um, the James Webb Space Telescope or JWST as it's called um, is sitting at the Lagrange point in, in cold space, millions of, a million plus miles from here um, and is focused on best description I heard was a grain of sand at arm's length. That much if from your eye, that, that little space, grain of span, sand is the amount of the of space that it was focused on um, for, I think they said about 20 minutes. And, you know, it's got another one of these deep field images where there's just hundreds of, of galaxies in this one little area, which uh, is pretty fantastic. Because if you remember when the Hubble did that picture, gosh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, that was practically yesterday. Either days or weeks worth of of collecting light mm-hmm. to get that image, and this was like twenty minutes. So, so that just gives you uh, the the difference that the the measurement is, the location, and the power of this new space telescope. Um, and really cool pictures, uh, pictures of nebula, pictures of galaxies um, and the first I'll call it reading because this is 
it's it's an inf- it also does infrared, which is one of the reasons why it's where it's at, where it's so cold. Um, is a atmospheric analysis of a large planet um, showing the amount of liquid water in various spectra, which is just really cool. The other thing that I'm looking forward to is the flexibility of the James Webb Space Telescope will allow it to actually point at objects in our own solar system. Did, so didn't they take a picture the, of Jupiter already? The clarity of Jupiter, yeah. which it, I think that one was published yesterday. Yep, yep, I think um, you're right. And uh, so there, we're, we're going to get to see things that we've never seen before. Uh, we're going to be able to revisit things we've seen before, which is what some of the initial shots were, which just show you the resolution difference uh, between Nebula. Uh, and one of them, I think, was a, a star... I guess it was a star exploding, uh, and it should they you know you put the two pictures side by side from thirty years ago and now, and the, again the clarity, the resolution, the amount of detail, the fact that we are able to look in infrared means we can start looking through cosmic clouds, uh, and actually see stuff within those clouds. Uh, very very exciting, exciting to see this and to see what's going to come out over the next you know ten twenty years from this from this telescope. Well, you, like so many others, are um, absolutely astonished by what is now visible. Um, I I think the phrase is geeking out. Yeah, (laughs) I I am super thrilled about the promise of what might be. And what might be is open, 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 open uh, for because of this. I thought I saw something. I can't remember if it was from James Webb or not, but... uh, Yesterday, or it was this morning, they announced picking up uh, a repeated radio signal. Yeah, I saw that too. Uh, it's a, we we got to find a link to that. Yeah. Put it in the show notes. Yeah, because these are the promises uh, that being able to look and and the other the key thing for people who who aren't you know space nuts uh, when we when we say you're looking at uh, a spot on the sky and collecting this light, remember. Light is also, in this case, a measure of distance and time. Yeah. So you're actually looking back in time at a point in space from billions of years ago. Uh, So the hope with James Webb compared to Hubble is we'll be able to get back to, I think it's within 100 to 200 million years after the Big Bang. And one other thing, just you know, to really geek out on space, uh, to take that, the the expansion of our current universe is accelerating. Yeah, and we're about to get to the point where, well, about in cosmic time, to where the light traveling from the past will not be able to catch up to where we are. So we're actually going to eventually lose the ability to see all the way back because we'll have expanded beyond. Oh, that threshold, uh, the the Big Bang. So so, and the ability to look back in time because we'll be going faster than the light is traveling to us, and it'll just slowly drift away. Uh-huh. So uh, wow. But we that are now still takes, at the that's closest take we'll time. be able to see of information coming from the telescope as ever has been. 
true uh, 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 although that's like saying today's the friday that is the friday is a fr- which is the last day of the work week kind of stipulation right it, it'll never it'll never be closer than it is today in, in terms well, right because that expansion if, is if, true if we weren't yeah because of the expansion if the expansion wasn't accelerating yes we could eventually catch up to that old light but right it's I, We're getting further and further away. It, yeah, the time machine aspect of this, I think, is really pretty incredible. And uh, when you take into account all the physics and astrophysics of it all, and most of it is not so difficult to understand, even even for you know for lay people like us, um, mm-hmm. that you're you're able to really marvel at what what this represents. So, uh, like I said, I'm super excited about what are we going to learn. And this has been up and operational, what, less than a week. And we're already having like one thing after another go boom, boom, boom. So uh, what are we going to see when we're taking a look at the moons around Saturn? What are we going to see when we pointed at that grain of speck of sand, uh, however many millions and billions of light years away? It's going to be super cool. I just We live in a great time, Michael, and the discoveries are just going to be amazing. Um, so... So we've talked about time machines and we've talked about looking into the past through telescopes. Uh, now we have another story about looking into the past through maps. And yes, in our pre-show, as we were talking about this, Michael, you said, gosh, you know, haven't we talked about this sort of thing before? There's a there's a Wired article. It came out a couple weeks ago, or maybe not even a week, uh, five days ago. Um, a couple of days and, ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty recently, about uh, traveling back in time using maps and map capabilities. So Google has had this now for a while. So you, you could go and see what the Google cameras on whichever truck drove around near your neighborhood, um, you know, which car was in front of your house at the time that happened, or uh, what was that uh, person doing in a park? Oh, wait a minute, uh, that's blurred out now. Um, So Mm -hmm. Google Maps has had that for a while, and I think there's been some enhancements since we've looked at this last. There there are also other portals that are out there, uh, one of which is called Old Maps Online, which was really kind of a cool experience too where you could dial up a particular place on earth and then have a look and see what maps are there of that particular place on earth and when was it done so i was having a look at a um, 1796 map uh, that was done by a a w uh winter botham is the the person's uh, the publisher's name and and it's like yeah okay so i recognize barrier islands are a little bit of different configuration than they were or have been now um that's to be expected that's what goes on but really cool way of looking at human um smaller time scales than talking about when we're talking about interstellar travel of course but uh what was the place like uh, at any particular point in time for the map representation of it. So pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, re- I remember actually, what was it? Teradata. Teradata was uh, the the site originally that did the satellite maps. Gosh, I want to say like 2001, 2002. Mm-hmm. And it had that same ability. And I think Teradata was eventually acquired by Microsoft, uh, included in their map platform. So anyway. 
Very cool. And if you do want to see the space angle on this too, there's a company called um, uh, Esri. They have the world imagery wayback portal that will let you look yes. at maps from space of Earth at particular points in time. So again, smaller timelines than uh, what Mr. Uh, or uh, winter winter bottom has has done for the state of North Carolina because the, as far as I know we didn't have a satellite up above North Carolina in geosynchronous orbit around 1796 that you know of. that I know of but you know <laughs> maybe we'll go back in time and do that um springing forward in time um yes. there uh, there is something in the near future September 30th not too far away uh, that are uh, friends over at Magic Leap have announced that the AR headset version 2 is showing up. And, uh, Michael, this is slightly more expensive than your original Google Glass. But Yeah, it's, it's more than double yeah. <laughs> my original. <laughs> um, and and uh, there's, a, there's an accompanying uh, video um, that uh, someone actually goes through and kind of does a review of the, of the V2 of uh, the glasses. Um, Sounds like it is significantly better than the V1. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that there is a V2 is pretty fantastic because for the longest time, Magic Leap was uh, the hype machine that was rumored to do stuff but never appeared. Yeah. Right. And then they finally came out. Uh, the fact that they're continuing to go forward is great. They they still have the um, the hip mounted puck. Right. The processing is not in the glasses. Right. The processing is in another device that is wired to the glasses. Um, so. So that's not a huge improvement there, but they have improved uh, a lot on field of view. Uh, they've improved on resolution. On I believe they've even improved on um, frame rate. Um, still is not going to work really well uh, for for those of us who wear glasses. Uh, they really want you in contacts, uh, unlike. Uh, HoloLens, which does have the kind of the visor that comes down uh-huh. uh, and works well with glasses. Uh, but really nice to see this. Uh, it is squarely aimed at the enterprise market now. Uh, sounds like they've backed off on any type of consumer play. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, as as a developer, I mean, you ought to order two of these. It's only $4,100. Yep. Or or the enterprise version is, is uh, what, five bucks shy of five grand? Something like that. Uh, Forty nine, forty ninety nine is the developer kit. Ah. Oh, the, yeah. Sorry, you're right. One dollar short of five grand uh, <laughs> for the enterprise version. It's forty nine ninety nine. Ah, okay. But that's with two years of support. Come on. Yeah, I know. That's that's pretty good right there. I mean, why thousand dollars a year for support basically is what that comes down to. <laughs> well, you know, we're we're still we're still on the front end of that curve as as we have been, and uh, boy, would I would I like to see the ability to do corrective lenses dynamic corrective lenses uh because well, they, the, that would what, really what, be the thing wouldn't what it? the magic leap does have is they do have corrective lens plugins mm-hmm. i mean you can swap the lenses out um but at least for the demonstration that the guy went to they didn't have his prescription in the box of predefined lenses right right <laughs> but but where i'm heading is there's nothing why can't they do that programmatically it. exactly dynamically yeah. programmatically and you know when you furrow your brow because you're trying to read something you can't read the lens is and they just, have eye tracking yeah, so they should be able to they do that just right? automatically bring things into focus right you know or maybe they're it, it, measuring it's, it's the back of like, your retina right i don't know well, think of how a camera works yeah. right a camera uh, uh, you know you press it down halfway yep uh, and and it uses light to bounce off the subject until it gets in focus. I, right, bingo. I, I used to have um, 
a, a Rico a Rico camera, a, a single lens reflex Rico camera, the same one that was used in that Schwarzenegger movie, the one where he was on Mars. It was super cool. Yes. You had a button you pushed in on the side, a handle flipped down, you lightly touched on the the take a picture button, right, the shutter, mm-hmm. and it would shoot out an infrared beam of light that would come back to the camera it would automatically adjust so yeah, well, why not do my DSLR why does. not do the same thing on your and glasses and just have it bounce into your eyes <laughs> you could do that too you know you just you calibrate it right yeah. you could calibrate it for the individual look friends this is not so hard if you need help writing a patent contact michael and me we're on it okay yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right now um uh, speaking of development and developers uh there was an intriguing article and i know michael you've delved into this uh, more than than a smidge um, a game developer had uh, presented at the international games festival uh, on the subject of the future of game design something that would be near and dear to our heart and probably our guest next week hint hint foreshadow um and um it wound up um, not presenting on that particular title, but on something else. So, Michael, set yeah. this up. What, what what actually happened in Brazil? Well, well, so 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 uh, again, this was a a game developer conference. Um, guy was supposed to talk. Uh, he's done this talk multiple times on the future of uh, game design. Uh, there were multiple. Um, crypto companies and blockchain companies sponsoring the event. And so what he really did is take an opportunity to talk about how the current trend of using NFTs in game design uh, or crypto was, was just a nightmare. And, and, and what it really came down to, uh, and th- as I read through the slides and, you know, it's, uh, what was it, almost 100 slides uh, available from the article that you can link to in our show notes over at games at work dot biz um, is it's, it's all about trying to monetize people's time playing a game. Hmm. Where have we talked right? about that before? And, and not necessarily for the benefit of the player. <laughs> Right. It, it, it basically is. And you and I talked about this, gosh, way at the beginning of all this. It's it is turning games into work and it's not just work, but it's work that produces no tangible value. Right. So so when we started this podcast, oh, so many years ago, the whole idea was, can you use gaming mechanics to do something valuable for work? Yeah, uh, you know, dancing with Wookies, right? Uh, where you're dancing with Wookies, which would help other people gain skills to do something. And we talked about, you know, could you use that to, you know, level up your Java skills or whatever, right? Yep. That was kind of the the early impetus for for all of this. Uh, but but what you're seeing in in um, in new game design is kind of play to earn modes, where you're earning some crypto coin or some NFT that may or may not have any value. And it's kind of the, the way I look at it is it's, it's sucking the joy out of games uh, and, and taking the value out of things uh, so that the, the, the value that you get from playing a game or even making a game gets removed 
um, and it's just pulled out of the market itself into you know somebody else who's mining crypto or whatever. So uh, that's a gross simplification of it. Uh, but I highly recommend if you don't speak, uh, I believe it's Portuguese. Uh, there is a um, English version. Uh, the, yeah. the deck that you can you can go and watch, uh, flip through. Uh, there is a video of it also available uh, from the conference itself. I don't know if uh, YouTube will auto translate that to English subtitles for you. Maybe so. If so, give it a shot. But I, I highly recommend looking at this uh, from the standpoint of. You know, when you do game design or when you uh, think about using game mechanics for some value, are you using those for the right reason? And is the value generated by the activity greater? You know, is it really providing a net value add? So uh, really, really good article. And like I said, the deck is something really to think about. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I've spun through a decent amount of it here. Um, while you were chatting about it too, Michael. And uh, it's interesting here too about the focus that the, this particular author places on blockchain and um, and on the relative um, detriment to value that blockchain brings. So uh, I, I, well, well, you think about it, right? right? Blockchain as it stands right now is very energy intensive. But it's energy intensive and it's based upon a limited trust structure, uh, the, yep. the way the presentation deck reads. And there's certainly uh, a fair amount of um, uh, merit to that argument. And, and I understand where that's coming from. I mean, you don't get the, the energy consumption potentially like you do with Bitcoin mining, but it's still right on up there anyway. And Mm -hmm. the distributed ledger requires storage, requires energy, requires all that kind of good stuff uh, too. So yeah, get it. Uh, Flip side of the equation, the smart contract aspect of a blockchain does provide for a degree of immutability and decentralization other capabilities that blockchain also take uh, sorry, but, but, but that's a different discussion that's a blockchain discussion exactly. that's not a game design discussion no right but that's where I, I did see a fair amount of blockchain in here and that he was well, oh yes because points, blockchain right? is an underpinning thing for nfts yes and this is a game design around you, you know driving crypto or NFTs. So you're going to have blockchain from that perspective. Yep. Uh, but but you know the, the blockchain has a value within its space. But using crypto or NFTs for game design. Yeah. That's the point. Well, right, and that's something I need to understand a little bit better. I mean, one of his slides says blockchain gaming is a threat to all of trust and hum- sustainable human solutions. Yes. So yes. in the form of NFTs in that way, I would, I would understand exactly what you're talking about there. All right, uh, guys, give this a shot. I think you're going to find it an intriguing discussion. Now, speaking of intriguing discussions, um, you, Andy, and Michael had this conversation at least once or twice in the last year, two years. I don't know. We have to go back in our show notes mm-hmm. and find it. I, I think, you know, I was working with that industry that we're about to mention back in 2014 so mm-hmm. uh, th- this has been coming since at least 2014 yep so so what we're talking about and there's an excellent article from the verge that's talking about how bmw as a car company is selling subscriptions maybe even on the blockchain uh, probably not um, to be able to have certain features of your car operate whether it is on a per month per year 
or even, oh, gasp, unlimited aspect. So the, the article says, for example, launching this in South Korea, um, you could have unlimited access to heated seats for the low, low price of, in this case, it says $415. So if you wanted heated seats from now until the end of time, uh, like, like I have in my 1999 model of a yeah. BMW. Um, like if I have in my car too. Yeah. You could you know, have that, uh, I, I could be enjoying that for over 20 years for $415, you know, and when you look at it on a per year basis, that's a pretty good deal, isn't it? Well, well, that's that, that last unlimited model. That's how you buy things on your car today. Oh yeah, right? that's right. That's just called a feature. Equipment, you pay for it when you buy the car. They put the equipment in the car like a fog light. Uh, but but the point here is, um, <laughs> and 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 the, the discussion I heard about this, uh, where somebody was trying to parse it and say, yeah, it's it's okay, but it's not. It's not okay. Uh, is you know, um, Tesla as kind of the model for uh, treating a car as software, uh, sells you services, software services for the vehicle post-delivery. Most of them are a one-time charge. Some of them are reoccurring charges because it's data plan related, right? But this is a hardware feature on your car. There's no real software that needs to be added in. They That they will turn on and off remotely for you as in the ability to use it for $18 a month or $180 a year. See, but that that's a discount right there. You, you just saved two months or, or $300 for three years. Yeah. Saved a lot more, but, but, but the thing is it's not purely a software feature. They're not going to upgrade it. You're not going to get upgraded heated seats because you're paying a subscription. The value in subscription is you continue to deliver value over time, so you're paying for it over time. That's a software model. This is a physical hardware feature on the car that they're trying to charge you as if it were a software feature. That is a fundamental problem. If we um, if we jump to other industries, we see where other industries may have a higher price for the hardware up front, and then the software comes along with it for free over time. So you you know that model helps with the time value of money notion, where you spend more money up front for the thing, and then the software that continues to make that thing relevant or better is comes along for free. Which is cool, right? Um, lots to be said about this. Let's see the yep. market. The market will decide. I think in the end, if this I is a good idea, I hope they get slammed for it because they're not adding additional value over time. Yeah, yeah. and and yeah, exactly, the heated seat is a heated seat. Um, rollable phones, Michael. Uh, yes, this thing looks kind of like I don't know, like a roll of tinfoily sort of thing. Like except it's a phone screen that rolls out to the side. Uh, yeah, this was shown at CES. Uh, was it the beginning of this year or last year at CES um, as a potential phone that LG was going to release? Um, and uh, then they got out of the business. <laughs> and so uh, evidently they sold a lot of their assets to their employees when they got out of the business. And so this video is actually someone demonstrating, uh, I guess this was a prototype device of LG's uh, rollable phone. And, and it's it's actually kind of cool. Uh, I don't think they've optimized the software very well. 
because it's like, yeah, you can expand out the screen and go from like, you know, uh, four or five centimeters wide screen to about nine, seven or nine, somewhere, somewhere around there. Um, and you get more real estate without having to unfold the whole phone. It just kind of slides out to the side. Yeah. It's kind of cool. But if you look at the icons at the bottom of the screen, they're just like hidden in the rolled area <laughs> and they're just slowly unrolling those icons. I don't know. It feels um, like a solution in search of a problem. You know, yes. Well, if, if I can scroll my you know, screen. Think about the foldable phones that you have right now. You've got a couple of them out there. Um, why do I, you know, that desire to fold and unfold, why do you have that? Well, because in certain use cases, you need more screen real estate. One, you're just using it on the phone. Next, you're going to browse the web or play a game and you need more real estate. This is just a different aspect, uh, different exposure to that same feature. Uh, and I do remember, gosh, probably six years ago talking about rollable OLEDs. Uh, and there you have it. I know we are just about out of time. Yep. Um, and, so, and we uh, foreshadowed something earlier that you wanted yes, to touch yes. on. Yes, yes. So... Uh, next week, it was uh, going to be only one of us on the show, but uh, that's changed. <laughs> um, so uh, I've lined up uh, an interview with a local game developer. Uh, the name of the company is Flying Fish Games. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about game design and how they've designed a game that they've been playing lately called uh, Corporate Sharks, which I thought was kind of a good businessy game type model um and uh it's a kind of a board game uh should be a neat discussion they've got four or five different games that they've been working on of uh, of different models um and i thought it'd be a good kind of summer activity so yeah it'll be one of our evergreen shows it'd be very cool get a little little knowledge on uh people who um, make games at work Yes, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. Well, uh, tune in next time, as you normally do, to gamesatwork.biz or your favorite um, pod environment, and you can capture all of the appropriate shows. This one, last one, and all the way back to episode zero, um, yes. or, or just uh, just come to the website gamesatwork.biz, and you'll see them all there too. Well, we'll catch Sounds you good. next time. See ya. Bye, everybody. You've been listening to GamesAtWork.biz, the podcast about gaming, technology, and play. We are part of the Blueberry Podcasting Network and would like to thank the band Random Encounters for their song, Big Blue. You can follow us on Twitter at GamesAtWork underscore biz or at our website at GamesAtWork.biz. GamesAtWork.biz.